Hello, welcome to the Living Open podcast for mystics and seekers. I'm your host, Erin. I'm a Philly-based healing artist, and this is a podcast to support your healing journey. Hello and welcome, welcome to another episode of the Living Open podcast. Today's episode is on creativity, imagination, and divination witchery with Edgar Fabian Frias. Edgar uses they them pronouns. They work in installation, photography, video art, sound, sculpture, printed textiles, gifs, or gifs, however you say that, performance, social practice, (laughs) and community organizing, among other forms. They are Wixarica and their family is from Mexico, though they have lived in the U.S. for most of their life. Their art addresses historical legacies and acts of resistance, resiliency, and radical imagination within the context of indigenous futurism, spirituality, play, pedagogy, animism, and queer aesthetics, weaving together the traditional and ancestral with the contemporaneous and emergent. Edgar is so lovely, and I've been following them on Instagram for a long time, so I was so thrilled when they said yes and wanted to have this really expansive conversation with me. Um, We talk about their journey with creativity and spirituality and healing, the door that, in quotes, confusing art opens, existing in states that aren't as valued by capitalism, bridging Western medicine and other ways of healing and bodies of wisdom, staying connected with the dream world or a love letter for dream witches, divination witchery, practicing tactical magic in the moment you need it, trusting what you receive in divination, reminding yourself of the support of the universe and ancestors, ancestral connection, the power and magic of imagination, divination and art practice, the interconnected cycles of creativity, vulnerability as a fertile space, and feeding our wholeness, especially when there is such pressure to constantly be creating. Before we get into this conversation, just a brief reminder of two things. One, my poetry collection, Moon Sign, is out everywhere, available widely. Um, and you can check it out at the link in the description and in the link in the description there's also um, a place for you to sign up for the waitlist for Holy if you're interested in potentially being involved in wanting to join getting more information about the next round of Holy which is a reclamation group for ex-religious folks um, when that does happen which maybe will be sometime later this year I'm not totally sure but that's the place to be for updates if you want updates about that. That's all I have to share. Sending you all so much love and softness wherever you are in these cycles of creativity and life and feelings and everything. I hope this episode, this lovely conversation with Edgar supports. So I'm so happy you're here. And I would love to start by hearing about your journey with healing and spirituality, anything you feel like sharing that's brought you to this moment and the person you are now and the work you do now. 
Oh, that's such a big question. <laughs> it's been, <laughs> yeah, definitely a long journey. I, um, I would say, you know, I've been in the field of healing <laughs> and spirituality since I was young. I grew up um, in a pretty religious household. I grew up Jehovah's Witness, and uh, I definitely had a lot of um, community and also connection to the divine and to spirit through that mm -hmm. church. And um, even though it also led me to, you know, feel isolated and excluded too, especially when I kind of came to understand that I'm queer and, you know, it really is one of the things that like pushed me into um, therapy. Um, and I started therapy when I was in my undergrad. And um, I would say, you know, if we're going to be looking at it through the lens of the diagnosis model, <laughs> I had a lot of anxiety and anxiety was one of the things that really pushed me into kind of really start looking at myself, at my body, at my being, at my organism. And, you know, through another lens, I, you know, was a mystic who didn't really have a lot of um, energetic support and boundaries and didn't really understand, um, you know, how sensitive my being is and like the care that my being needs. And I wasn't really taught those things, you know, it wasn't really talked about and it was really um, difficult to kind of grow up and be empathic and be picking up information and to, you know, not have boundaries uh, with people and to sometimes pick up, you know, emotions or energies that were not mine. And so I think, you know, those are all things that I have learned um, through the queer and trans and witch community and um, and also through therapy, too. And uh, those are definitely um, catalysts that really drove me into wanting to connect more with other witches, with other artists, with other healers, and to really uh, start to also spread a message and to share about my own journey and also to really... Um, help to destigmatize a lot of the experiences that people have, especially folks who uh, maybe are sensitive or uh, who have different abilities or gifts and who sometimes can um, end up only receiving the biological diagnosis, Western perspective around their um, beings. And I think that's also what has really excited me about art practice that art is a conduit that allows you to share some of this information and to also create a space for contemplation reflection and also confusion too I think there's Ooh. a lot of <laughs> yeah, <laughs> there's a, I love confusion especially in my artwork and I love art that is confusing that kind of helps me like maybe step into another state of awareness or even if it is um you know, through the portal of discomfort or <laughs> the portal of um, excitement or even like disgust, <laughs> you know, there's a lot of ways that we can be led into other states of awareness through art practice. And so, yeah, as you know, I'm someone who like really tries to weave all these different elements together and sees a lot of connections between these different fields and practices. And I'm really excited by people like starting to kind of bridge these spaces together and these practices together mm. yeah thank you so much for sharing I'm just like stuck on what you said about loving art that's confusing and I'm like yes <laughs> I love that so much <laughs> that's so good <laughs>
Because <laughs> then I feel like being in a space of confusion is a space where there isn't like rigidity or there's like this like openness mm. or curiosity and there's like a place to dig in and be like, oh, maybe I don't know what this is supposed to mean. So like, what does it actually mean to me? And that feels like such a rich space to to play in where kind of, I don't know, expectations have dissolved or something. Yeah, yeah. I love what you just said. And I feel like I've I've witnessed, especially as an educator right now, I'm teaching a class at UC Berkeley and it's like an introduction to art practice class. And mm. I've definitely noticed that, as you said, the the way that like academia and the system kind of pushes people towards having like resolution or like being able mm. to like quickly encapsulate um, understanding or knowledge. And I feel like there are art practices that really push up against that and um there is uh, a way that we're all like really taught to um you know ma- either make assumptions or really like process information quickly and i feel like um there are a lot of practices that really help us in being in that more as you're saying fluid liminal space and and it definitely brings up discomfort and that's like a big thing that i've had to um really think about as an educator like how do i like kind of talk about this discomfort how do i encourage this discomfort mm-hmm. um especially when it goes against a lot of what um students are taught you know Yeah, I feel like we learn from such a young age that it's very important to know and it's very important to have the answers. And if you don't have them, like you should probably feel ashamed of yourself and you should maybe like make something up and pretend like you do know. You should definitely have something to say. (laughs) And that feels so much more like closed and tight and not, um, yeah, not expansive or really true to me. I'm so much more interested in playing in like those open spaces. Yeah. And I think, you know, once maybe you push through the discomfort, you can really start to feel that playful energy more in it and also start to feel the possibility that exists within that confusion space. You know, that as you're saying, you can move in so many different directions and also um, allow things to ferment, allow things to, um, you know, take root and to really... um, become something else you know there is like an emergent quality to it yeah absolutely and I really appreciate what you shared also about um for those of us who might feel really sensitive or you know those of us who maybe are connecting with um spirit or our bodies are feeling really tender or feeling really cracked open by the world how like there's a way of viewing things through like a western medical model which I don't know, maybe all things are neutral, maybe there's that way. And then there's also ways of viewing those things as like gifts and not pathologies. And also there's like space within everything to be like, how can you be supported and feel good through that, Mm. whether that's within Western medical model or outside or with all of it. Um, And that really resonates with, with my experience. I think when I was growing up, I had my younger sibling was like the sensitive one in the family. And I had really shut down those parts of myself and didn't think of myself that way at all. And as I've been like doing healing work for so long, I'm like, oh my God, I'm actually so soft and so sensitive and so tender. And it feels good to be able to like touch those parts of myself. And I'm like, oh yeah, it also like, it makes sense why I tried to shut those things down because it's intense and it is not very conducive to functioning well within capitalism. <laughs> right. 
Yeah. And I think that that you bring up a really good point that it, you know, a lot of sensitives have to protect themselves within the system. And that, you know, I notice it in really subtle ways, like when, for example, I'm in, you know, the city uh, and I notice that like my energy body that I have to like bring it really close to my body and I have to be really protected. Mm -hmm. And that whenever I, I have the opportunity to get out into a more natural space or more open space, I can feel my body, my energy body just like starting to like open up and expand and you know the the way that you know that isn't always safe to do that you know it's not always um, comfortable to do that and um, I, I definitely have so much empathy for um, sensitives who are growing up in capitalism, especially uh, with hierarchies of value around, um, you know, labor production and, uh, you know, even states of awareness. You know, there are certain states of awareness that are really valued in our system. And there are some sensitive folks who really don't do well with those states of awareness or who really thrive in other states of awareness and you know, sometimes are not really given that space. Yeah. When you say that, I'm thinking about like the dreamy states and the feeling states and the visioning states and like how beautiful and amazing those are and states that are really valued in capitalism being like focused productivity. And (laughs) (laughs) and I think all those things are good. Like it also feels good for me to be like, wow, I'm really doing these things. Um, But yeah, assigning those like value judgments to those things and being like, you are good if you are able to function in these states is really harmful. Yeah. And I think, you know, I I really appreciate you bringing in like the complexity because I do feel like, you know, I'm not trying to disparage Western medical systems. Right. And like, I, you know, have my master's in counseling. I specifically focused on diagnoses um, in my um, work, especially because I felt so challenged by them. And also because I felt so, um, I think freed by them too. I think when I was first diagnosed with anxiety disorder, it really helped me understand something that like, I I think I had a hard time putting language to. Um, And at the same time, I definitely feel like it could be really limiting and harmful to only stay within that construct as well. And um, I, as someone who has sat in the, you know, in the, in between um, a lot of these disciplines and practices, I have heard, um, you know, different disparaging thoughts on either side. And I feel like um, there are a lot of um, Indigenous communities, a lot of communities like wisdom traditions that have not separated these types of experiences, whether it's like looking at people through a lens of, um, you know, spirituality and health at the same time. And, and I think the, I'm really grateful to know that there are a lot more practicing therapists, a lot more people within the medical field who um, are opening up that bridge and kind of creating space for there to be, you know, more complexity within people um, and not only uh, focusing on diagnosing people or seeing people as, you know, merely products of their symptoms, you know, because I think there is so much more that gets awakened, awakened <laughs> when we, um, 
yeah, when we start to look at these um, aspects of ourselves, you know, when we start to really reflect on like what it means for us to be sensitive, what it means for us to need to um, be more aware of our states of consciousness, you know, and maybe a little bit more um, intentionally create space for those dreamy moments, mm-hmm. you know, for those visionary moments. Um, because I, I definitely know that capitalism doesn't encourage us to do that, you know, and so it is, it does at some point become um, an intentional practice, even though I know, you know, from my experience of working with people that a lot of people, you know, will do, will enter into these states, even at the, um, you know, the danger of being, you know, chastised or, or, you know, um, mm-hmm. yeah, discouraged from doing that in, because it is so intuitive. It is so, um, there is such a deep desire in us to um, go into these spaces. Yeah, I really think that's true. And I think maybe that's one reason that working with my literal dreams feels so beautiful and supportive. It's like literally a dream state. And it's something that's so like personal and connected and intuitive and feels like part of my body also and is like a space for rest too. And there's so many folks doing amazing work around the the revolutionariness of rest, yeah, <laughs> um, <laughs> whatever that word is. Um, but yeah, connecting with like those parts of ourselves and making intentional space, and also you know to dream when we're awake too, um, feels so important for us to like be our whole selves. Yeah, and it's such a gift that like you know in the midst of capitalism and, you know, um, feeling like we have to show up in a certain way that we are um, invited to open up into the dream space every day, you know, and that that is such a part of our life that does influence us so much. And so, you know, as much as like the waking world might like have certain, um, you know, ontologies and ways of organizing oneself, like I feel like we're always going to be connected to that dream world. We're always going to be receiving those messages and those perspectives from the dream world. And yeah, uh, that is such a gift. (laughs) It's such a gift. It's such a gift. I'm like, what magic that we, you know, we exist within these systems and we go around all day. And also at night, we spend all of these hours making up these beautiful stories in our minds and like playing in these different landscapes. How incredible. <laughs> <laughs> so grateful for that. Yeah. Yeah, same. Yeah. And so grateful for the people that are able to like bring those messages back from the dream world and also channel those messages because they're, I, I definitely um, I really admire like dream witches, you know, I feel like that's like totally like a type of witch who's like really able to harness, to connect with, to commune with the dream space. And, you know, I, I feel like I'm a little bit of a dream witch, but I like, I feel like I more admire dream witches, you know, in the same way that I admire like other kinds of witches that feel a little bit outside of myself like astro witches you know there's I feel like I'm like a divination witch you know Mm, yeah (laughs) (laughs) which is its own kind of dreaming too you know (laughs) yeah will you tell us about your divination witchery and I guess also I'm curious like because these practices and spirituality like mean so many different things to so many people like how does that show up in the way that you live how does that influence how you show up in in the world 
Mm, yeah, it, it's shown up in many different ways. I feel like ever since I was really young, I've had um, guides and um, ancestors come to me and share messages. And uh, whether it's through the animals or the clouds or whether it's through hearing voices um, or seeing images in my third eye, there's so many ways that I've kind of been guided and 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 supported and i've also had the honor of connecting with so many witches who have had many kinds of practices that are connected with divination and i feel like a lot of them have been uh, guided to me by my ancestors for example when i was really young as i said i grew up jehovah's witness and then you know one of my first experiences outside of my home was uh, studying abroad in england and when i was living in england i met a bunch of queer and trans anarchists that were living in like a squatted house and uh, a lot of them were witches and were practicing mm -hmm. magic and um, it was one of the first times that I really um, started to learn about tarot and about um, you know crystal gazing and those are all practices that really resonated with me and uh, so many queer and trans friends, not just in England, but like in the US too, are, have really um, exposed me to tarot and different types of divinatory practices and, and casting spells. And it wasn't until my 30s, uh, you know, through a dream, actually. So I guess I am a little bit of a dream witch. <laughs> I got, Definitely um, dream witch. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I had a message from my ancestors telling me to go look for a crystal and um, my partner and I went on like hikes. This was like near my parents' house and we found a crystal and that crystal sent like a really profound message to me. And it was that message that opened up like a line of conversation with my father around our um, indigenous ancestry. And it was until my thirties that I found out that uh, my um you know, indigenous community really connects a lot with divination, with crystal gazing, with ancestral communion. And it was one of those moments where I feel like a lot of what I had experienced in my life and like the ways that I had, I had already been guided mm -hmm. really finally made sense. And, uh, and so I feel like since then I've really deepened into divination and have also discovered like the thousands of ways that people work with divination. And so I'm really expensive when it comes to divin divinatory practices. I feel like they can come through conversations. People use their like iPhones as black mirrors to like receive information. You know, people look at into each other's pupils, people fire gaze, people work with runes, with stones, with tea leaves. Like there's a million ways to uh, really enter into these divinatory uh, spaces. And for myself, I would say scrying and tarot have been my two kind of main um, divinatory practices and when I say scrying I mean like kind of gazing into a medium and allowing that medium to open up a portal uh, to be able to communicate with ancestors and spirits and um, I've worked a lot with obsidian and water I've also worked with the clouds and with the leaves and the branches mm. uh, those have really been my I would say favorite spaces to gaze and also water, water in terms of both like in a bowl and also I love looking into streams and into the ocean so there's yeah <laughs> I, I can definitely talk about divination all day long I feel <laughs> <laughs> I love that <laughs> I also love what you're saying about there's it just feels like there's this expansive to 
expansiveness to what you're saying and also like a resourcefulness, you know, like whatever you have, like you can practice divination, <laughs> with. Like yes. you can look outside, like you don't need to have things. Um, and I'm just like melting a little inside when you said like gazing into someone's pupils. I'm like, I'm definitely going to try that with my partner. <laughs> Yeah, I've been really inspired by um, Eliza Swan, who's like the founder of the Golden Dome School. Um, and uh, her and I, for a moment, we had this series called Tactical Magic and where we were like teaching people tactical practices. And I feel like ever since then, I, I've really um, been so excited by that idea of like, you know, you might be in the middle of like a protest and need to like receive information. And so you can't like, you know, do your whole setup and like have the privacy of your like space and so you might just need to like go gaze at the clouds for a moment you know <laughs> and like mm. or you know as you're saying find whatever's around you and I, and I really feel like divination can feel like a practice that you know might be like outside of like our everyday world but I really do feel like traditionally it's been used tactically in so many ways to communicate to send messages to receive messages and so I really like to teach it in that way of like know that you can do this practice yeah very you know very ritualistically you can spend an hour doing it or you can spend five seconds checking in you know like I think it's really trying to open up that space for people yeah that's so cool I think at this moment in my life, practices like that feel really important. I think I go kind of like flowing like this through um, being more ritualistic and more like I'm sitting down and taking all this time and then being in spaces in my life where I either don't have the desire to do that or I just don't have the ability to do that. And I still want to stay connected to magic and practice. And so having these like short, small ways to tune in and check in, feel, feel really good and really doable. Whereas I'm like, if the only way I can access magic is by doing a big, long ceremony, like that just isn't maybe going to happen at all. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah. And as you're saying, our capacity changes. And I know for myself, when I practice divination, it can be really exhausting, especially mm -hmm. if I do it in that ritualistic way. Super meaningful. And it's actually like led me to have some of the biggest downloads and insights of my life. Mm -hmm. And so I'm not at all trying to say it's not worth that exhaustion. <laughs> you know, um, it's definitely, um, you know, I think has its moment and its place. And then, yeah, as you're saying, there are moments where you just need that like little you know five second check-in and that can be so helpful to still stay connected as you're saying because we all de mm -hmm. desire that connection and need that connection and yeah it can feel really um like a big ask to you know do a huge ritual every single day you know yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well I'm curious where like trust comes into this for you and if you have any words about like trusting what you're receiving and connecting with. Cause I think sometimes that can definitely be a sticky place for me. And I imagine other people as well, where I'm like, I can receive this message from my own cards, from other places where I'm like doing this practice myself, but I'm like not going to do anything about it maybe because it feels too big or too scary. Or I'm like, I don't know, I'm not sure. And then like I do a session with like, Asia Dusher and yeah. she like <laughs> tells me the same thing I already know and I'm like oh, okay now I trust it and believe it so <laughs> she's amazing <laughs> but, <laughs> yeah 
yeah, I would love to hear your thoughts and musings about trust. <laughs> yeah, um, I, you know, for a long time, like never would have identified as a psychic person. I feel like, especially because uh, growing up, I, you know, didn't really like have that context for myself, even though I was having a lot of psychic experiences, I didn't really use that language or have that language. Um, and it wasn't until like, you know, I would say my um, late twenties that I started to speak with other people who are psychic. And uh, one person that I really am um, so grateful for is um, his name is Asher Hartman. And he's like a really powerful intuitive who has really helped me, um, as you're saying, like validate those things that maybe have been coming in. And um, one thing that he really helped me understand is that there's like a very, very thin line. And sometimes I feel like there might not even be a line between like imagination and psychic experiences. And I feel like the moment I've really leaned into imagination and stopped being maybe skeptical of imagination, because I do feel like I was taught by the system to be skeptical of my imagination. Um, that's really opened up my psychic abilities, I feel, and really helped me trust more. And and when I say trust, I'm like, I'm not even trusting that like what's coming in is quote unquote real and more that there's, there's a message behind what's coming in and that um, there might even be a moment of processing needed for me to really uncover the message. And so I feel like a lot of divinatory experiences have really taught me that uh, the symbology, just like in dreams, like can be really um, at first confusing you know going back to confusion uh, or it can be or it can be like a little um disarming and then um i really encourage a lot of processing um along with divinatory practices and I, when i say processing i mean like either through dance or through writing or drawing other uh, or even speaking with a friend and that can actually really help like unpack and um expand upon what initially is coming in and, you know, and I'm, you know, I really, I like to think of divination as both like looking into the future, kind of imagining into the future and also spell casting and setting intention. I kind of like com combine all of them together. Yeah. And so there's times even when I'm doing my own like tarot readings, for example, and I'll get a card and I just like don't like the message and I'll just like put it back and I'll get another card and I'm like, I'm not going to cast this spell, you know, and, mm -hmm. and I feel like kind of allowing myself to be more fluid and playful has also really opened up possibility. And also knowing that when you cast spells, you set an intention and that the universe collaborates with you. And sometimes the universe has other ways of unfolding that you might be kind of surprised by. And I think those are all things that I really try to hold when I'm doing divinatory work is that, yes, I might be receiving messages, but I might actually be really surprised as to how these messages come into my life. Mm. Or, you know, sometimes, um, I really learned that like the tower card, for example, is really necessary to get into another um, space in your life. And I've had those moments where I've just like really had that like question of like, why is this happening to me? Like, what is this about? 
And it's not until later that I'm able to look back and really see um, the way I was being guided, even if it was uncomfortable or scary for a moment, but I was really being guided in a direction. And so I think trust overall, I really like to, I believe really wholeheartedly that the universe is conspiring to support me and that there are ancestors and guides that are also conspiring and that they um, are connecting me with people, with experiences that are going to support me and that are going to be a part of my own development. And so I really trust in that. And I think maybe the, the details will kind of (laughs) <laughs> you know, sort themselves out in a sense. Mm-hmm. Um, I really try to lean into that trust of like, I'm being guided, I'm being held, I'm being cared for. And that's a big part of my faith and my like practice as a witch too, is like really kind of, you know, centering myself in that, doing things to remind myself of that whenever I forget mm-hmm. to, you know? <laughs> yeah. How do you remind yourself of that when you forget? Oh my gosh. Uh, (laughs) I would say, you know, there's so many ways. Uh, um, I think, you know, speaking to a loved one, speaking with a Mm -hmm. friend is really helpful. Um, Going out and like being around trees and plants, Mm -hmm. um, being around birds, like those are all ways that I um, get reminded, especially because I, (laughs) I have such a beautiful experience with plants and animals where I do really feel like a lot of them reach out to speak with me. And um, it's in that reaching out that I, again, am reminded of that like sacred uh, connection. And um, like, for example, my partner and I will go on walks and like, we'll have like every other dog just be like, hi, I want to talk to you. I want to be a friend, <laughs> you know? And, and sometimes like they're, they're like um, the people that are with them, like have to like try to pull the dog away. And the dog's like, no, I want to hang out with this person, you know? And it just, again, the, one of those moments where I'm just like, yeah, like I can really feel that connection and I really um I know that a lot of beings are starved for that witnessing and for that um you know for people to really see us I know I I was definitely starved for that I really wanted to be seen and felt like a lot of people didn't understand who I was and so I definitely noticed that that's like medicine for other um, beings and I say beings because it's not just humans that need that you know and I know a lot of people go around kind of thinking that plants and animals don't have awareness and they're like so aware and so want to connect and I think when you know that when you also can kind of speak in that language they're like so excited to speak to you and the same is with spirits too because i Mm. i've had that experience so much doing divination work and having spirits just like so excited to talk to someone you know yeah yeah to see them and to witness them yes (laughs) do you feel that when you are communicating with your ancestors specifically does it feel like that like them wanting to be seen or what does that feel like yeah, yeah, they, I feel like they've tried in so many ways to connect with me. And for a long time, they were sending me messages that I maybe didn't really understand were like requests for connection, requests for um, conversation. And once I like kind of really understood that and opened up those channels, like so much information came in and they, started showing me like projects they wanted me to do spaces Mm -hmm. they wanted me to go to uh you know rituals they wanted me to enact like there was so much that they were wanting to share with me already and you know I've actually been um 
reading a lot um, in my, um, I'm in a graduate program at uh, UC Berkeley right now in, in that MFA program. And I, I've been reading a lot about like um, haunting. Uh, there's a lot of writers who've been talking about like haunting, how there's like, you know, this system really tries to like kind of push away like the, the uh, you know, really violent history of this um, land. And there uh, are ways that like, it's kind of, they think that it's been buried, right? But then like, there's so much that is coming up and is trying to communicate with us and uh, that is really felt and present. And I, I think a lot of like um, sensitive people feel that when they go to spaces, they'll feel like the ancestors or the spirits of the land there. And and I just think that like so many people I know have been having that experience. I've been talking to so many people who've been having their ancestors come to them in their dreams, who've been, you know, receiving messages where they're being guided to connect with something in spite of like the fact that like capital and the system doesn't encourage ancestral communion, you know, but it, it is so profound how many uh, folks I speak to who are like, you know, in spite of this, like having these messages come through and are needing some support around that because it, again, kind of going back to what we were talking at the beginning, I think uh, when you don't have the words, the language, or even like the examples, it can be really challenging to be like, receiving messages in your dreams or to be like you know hearing waking messages like there's <clears throat> yeah I think that that's what's really like also encouraged me to talk a lot about ancestors and to be expansive when I say ancestors and um, I, I should just share like when I say ancestors I I am speaking about my own lineages as a like Latinx indigenous um, person and also I think of ancestors as connected to us spiritually there's a lot of queer trans and gender expansive ancestors there are a lot of ancestors that were connected through certain like spiritual conceptual aesthetic lineages and also um, through the African Afro-futurist and the indigenous futurist um, traditions, I've also really learned that uh, many of us who have been dislocated or disconnected from our ancestors also have the power and magic to imagine our ancestors, to create ancestors. And I think that's also a really powerful practice that I encourage folks, because there are a lot of folks who feel so much either wounding or emptiness when it comes to their ancestral Mm -hmm. connections. Yeah, thank you so much for sharing that. And I think it's making me think about how we were talking about capitalism and how that makes us feel earlier. I think also there's like this isolation that comes along with that, right? Like we're supposed to be alone and totally independent and self-sufficient and everything we've done is just because of us, which is just like never true. And then when we do like ancestor work and we're just like opening up to being part of this wide like and vast fabric that is not just us, but we get to play some small role in the connectedness of, yeah, with our queer and trans ancestors, with the people we literally come from, with like all of these different lineages and um, how, how important it is to remember that connection and that interconnectedness and to actually feel it and be like, this is important. This matters enough to like try and talk to these people and to make space for them in my life. And it matters. 
Yeah. And I, yeah, I think that's such an powerful message because I know I myself felt so alone for so long as um, a witch, as a visionary, as someone who was wanting to connect art practice with witchcraft or spirituality and, you know, to realize that I'm a part of a big web of people who've done that for so long. Mm -hmm. And um, again, Eliza Swan, I remember once I was interviewing her for an art project I did um, for my first solo show that I had at the Vincent Price Art Museum. And I asked her the question, um, what's something you wish you would have known growing up? And mm-hmm. she said, like, I wish I would have known that I'm like um, living in a world of collaboration and that there's always collaboration happening between myself and plants and animals and my, you know, and ancestors and that I really, um, really learned how real that is that there um there's an infinite well of of connection and also of um collaborative support if you need it and i think now uh, that's why i love also connecting divination with art practice because i feel like it is a really um fertile space for people to tap into and to really understand again that their imagination is really powerful and it's a gift and it is connected to their spirituality and it's connected to um I think like our, our futures. And I think there, it, there's a reason why our, our imagination is like diminished or, or minimized or, you know, even in a way demeaned sometimes by our society is because it is such a portal. It is such a channel conduit. Yeah. And how vulnerable to share your dreams, your spirituality, your feelings, all of those things in art that you make and then share with other people for them to see. <laughs> it's wild. I think I'm experiencing some of that vulnerability hangover maybe now. So I've just like shared my first poetry collection. I'm like, oh God, people are reading those things that I, that art that I made, those things that I wrote. Um, I think, yeah, vulnerability is such a part of it too. And being able to soften into that and the discomfort of that definitely yeah and i'm glad that you bring that up because i think it is important to name that there is like a a space that you go into after you release something into the world after you finish a big project like there is this like really tender space um and I feel like some artists or, or or just like people in general can feel really um, thrown off by that sometimes, especially if there's a lot of momentum and excitement and, you know, and it was even like a really positive experience that it could always many, many times, I almost like, like to think of it as like, that's, that's like the hanged person in the tarot, like that space that is like so needed to like process and to kind of regroup and sometimes heal and slow down and mourn sometimes because there can be mourning that happens when you release something into the world. Um, And um, I really feel like that's also like a fertile space too. Um, That vulnerability is a really fertile space. And, and I think that it's like something that doesn't get talked a lot about when it comes to creativity that like we need all those like cycles, those parts of the cycle, you know, that they're all interconnected and that sometimes we do need that like, yeah, that space of either rest or 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 crying or, or sleeping, you know, to like really allow things to then shift and move, you know, but you need to, you can't just like avoid that part of the cycle, you know? Yeah. And I feel like there's this sense or pressure that like 
you're an artist or someone who makes things, then you are creative in quotes all the time. And you're always creating something and you're like always in that active creative energy and output space. Um, And yeah, that just sort of diminishes that there's actually a cycle here that you're talking about. And just like you mentioned the tower card before too, like things complete and they end or they die. And then there's like void space. And from that space, like, wow, what do we make? (laughs) (laughs) We rest and ideas come in or they don't or whatever happens. Um, But to like allow that space, I feel like is a practice. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And to normalize that space, I, I think a lot of people get really worried or feel upset because it's, you know, we're not posting on our Instagram account. Like I'm like eating chips on my bed in my bed because I'm like crying over releasing my project. You know, one example of what that could look like, you know, um, <laughs> but you know, it's like, we're, we're really not discouraged from showing those parts, even though they are parts of the cycle, you know, that are very important and up and maybe not as flashy, not as like escaping and just as necessary, you know. And um, and I think that there is also though something something um important about there being aspects of our lives that are private and that mm-hmm. we don't share. Um, you, even though I do feel like it is good for us to talk about these things with our loved ones and to and to normalize them, to know that, like we as creatives cannot be on all the time. It's just like that would not that would lead to like burnout. You know, basically. Yeah. Sometimes I'm just reading books and eating peanut butter cups in the tub. Yeah. That's mine. <laughs> <laughs> and that's just what it is. <laughs> and I think there's also something there about like when I'm like feeding my wholeness and like whatever that means, it's like pleasure, or it's rest or connection or whatever, then like I'm ultimately feeding my creativity also. Um, and like my life is feeding my creative practice too and they're all intertwined and you know it's all it's all one and the same thing and sometimes it just looks different ways and sometimes I'm more comfortable with it looking certain ways than it does (laughs) yeah you know and that makes me think a lot about like it can get confusing especially you know when you start to um, work as an artist you know I feel like there can I feel like sometimes I have to remind myself that like it isn't all about like working as an artist that there that I need to like go look at art I need to have pleasure I need to like be in a space with of emptiness I need to like go be with the trees like there's so many uh, ways that my art practice is nourished and grows through these other practices that I think like you know this system really like encourages us to like um, only see production and labor as our practice but it it is so expansive and really does need all those other elements and so I I definitely have that as a uh, as part of my like um art artistic kind of work I I I, like sometimes have to force myself to like go to an art gallery put my emails away you know for a day like and um and you know and it's and it is sad a little bit that I have to like contextualize it as like this is still your work you know but I do feel like there is such a pressure to constantly be creating. And I think when you're self-employed, it also, um, it, it is also like hard to turn things off, you know, <laughs> and to just see, mm-hmm. cause you could always be working. You could always be like creating something. And so I think um, it can be really, it is really important to give yourself that space. Cause I, I definitely know that um, 
I need that inspiration. I need that break. I need that those moments to really allow other things to happen that are not just so directly connected to my productivity and um, to my practice. Yeah, absolutely. I feel that so much. I'm like in in the midst of trying to <laughs> trying to navigate those those questions for myself now too. So it feels really good to talk about them with you. Um, I want to ask you the last question that I always ask on this show, which is just what does living open mean to you and what comes up when you hear that? Uh, yeah. So I, you know, I really, I guess going back to what we were talking about earlier, I think one thing I've learned is that it is such a gift to be sensitive. It is such a gift Mm -hmm. to be able to open your heart to other people and to open your heart to possibilities, to dreams, to visions, to open your heart to the plants and animals, to really allow that bridge to be made um, in between and that there's such a balance um, when it comes to being open and to living openly and um, that people um, will be inspired by your journey. And, you know, and it is scary to share. It is scary to put yourself out there to be vulnerable. And yet it is um, also so recursive i think like as you give yourself permission to live openly as you give yourself permission to really um, expand and open your heart you give that permission to others and others start to mirror that back to you and um, i feel like it's really transformed my life to um be more public and to be more open about who I am as a person even if i found it challenging at first because i'm pretty um I would say like I'm an ambivert. I'm like both like really extroverted and introverted depending on the moment and the day. Um, And so I did have big parts of me that were really scared about like um, coming out of the witch closet, you know, or coming (laughs) out of different closets that I've come out in my life. And yeah, I really um, feel like I've um, been able to create such a beautiful community of people around me by um, being open and by also encouraging other people to live openly. So yeah, (laughs) I think that's what it means to me. How beautiful. That feels so like, it just feels so warm and good to hear you say that. (laughs) (laughs) Can you tell people where they can find you, follow you, check out your work online? Yeah, I have a website, edgarfabianfrias.org, and you can find a bunch of my links there. Um, I also have a YouTube channel, and I'm on Instagram and Twitter, and now more recently on TikTok, too. So you can definitely find me in all those spaces. And I do have a newsletter where I send updates about my um, tarot openings, and I also share about like events and exhibitions and collaborations that I'm doing, too. Cool. Thank you so much for being here and sharing. I I just feel like your presence feels so grounding in this conversation and also so like open and wide. (laughs) It's it's lovely to, yeah, to be with you. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Erin. Really appreciate being on your podcast and to connect with your community. It's such a gift to be um, part of this. And to, I also am feeling so gushy (laughs) after this Mm. conversation. It's uh, early today here. So this feels like the best way to start my day. I'm feeling a lot of that. Um, as you're saying, groundedness and also expansiveness. Um, Really, really thank you so much. 
Yeah, thank you. I'm feeling like so much more connected to the magic of life right now. I'm like, wow, I'm so happy to be alive. Thank you so much for listening. If you loved this episode, please do tap five stars and leave us a nice review on whatever podcast platform you're listening on. I appreciate it so, so much. And it's a really lovely way to be in exchange with the show, with an indie podcast. You can check out all the links mentioned in this episode in the description, and I'll be back on Monday with another episode. Make sure you subscribe so you don't miss it and stay in touch on instagram at e-r-y-n-j underscore or patreon until then